welcome to the Blue Mountain Center podcast. I'm Zohar, and I'm here with... Uh, Luke Nathan. Uh, Luke Nathan. How uh, Luke you... Nathan. <laughs> How are you doing today, Luke Nathan? Uh, I'm doing well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So Luke and I are here at Blue Mountain Center by ourselves right now. Uh, we've been recently deserted by the alumni residency. And I just want to Luke, what is your favorite thing to do at BMC when you're here by yourself? Hmm. Well, I would say go outside. Mm. However, however, there are th- threats outside currently. <laughs> what are the threats outside currently? They are tiny threats, and they go by the name of black flies. Ah. And okay. they come here probably in the middle of May, mm-hmm. and they stay until early July. So, if you're not going outside because of the the threats, the black flies, what do you do? I um I read books. Mm-hmm. Um often le- lately I've been reading books of residents so mm. that I can ask them proper questions. Oh, for the um, podcast. For the podcast, for the nice. thing that we are currently doing. Um I also, my other pastimes include eating Alan's food, eating mm-hmm. leftovers, mm-hmm. Um, drinking too much coffee, um, and uh, re- looking at books all in the hallways that I'll probably never get around to reading. That's another one of my hobbies. Zohar, what are your hobbies? Uh, my hobbies? No, sorry. I should be more specific. Just like you just asked me. <laughs> um what hobbies do you do at Blue Mountain Center when no one is here? Well, my favorite answer to this question is a complete lie, but I'll tell you what it is, which is to take baths in all of the different bathtubs available at Blue Mountain Center. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. um, that's just such a great idea. It's like we live in this mansion, and when it's deserted, there's like 10 different bathtubs of different shapes and sizes and porcelain or something else, claw feet, no claw feet. And I'd love to say that I've used every single one of them, but the truth is, I'm just, I just like showers. Mm. I just yeah. shower in our regular old shower. I mean, showers are pretty great. Yeah. Yeah. They're fine. You, and you also have <laughs> they a- They get the job done. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, what can, I mean, if you're good at showering, mm-hmm. if you're not good at showering, mm-hmm. more difficult to- Yeah. Yeah. But I'm going to keep telling people that as soon as- everyone leaves i like am doing nothing but taking baths 24 7 because i think that's funny okay luke who did you talk to this week on the podcast uh this week i talked to ashley mccarr uh ashley is an editor at killing the buddha she works at iris which is uh integrated refugee and immigration immigrant services and that's in new haven connecticut and she also has a new ebook or recently new somewhat new ebook i think it came out in november an ebook of essays called you were strangers dispatches from exile and how was your conversation with her it was good we covered a lot of ground and i think i got through it without saying anything that stupid seems like the backdrop of the some really you just talk about it but the sort of backdrop of the book is the nonprofit work that you do or um or whatever is it would you call it nonprofit work or uh yeah i would call it um 
refugee resettlement work. But yeah, I work for a nonprofit that resettles refugees to New Haven. Um, but a lot of the stories about refugees that uh, are in that book um, happened before I started doing this work. It's actually those stories that led me or those experiences that led me to do uh, refugee resettlement work. So you were ju- you were kind of just doing it as a rogue person wanting to help? Yeah. <laughs> and so just to be yeah. specific, these are people from Sudan. Yeah. Or maybe more now, I don't know, predominantly or Um so in the yeah, the some of the stories in this book are about uh refugees from Sudan who had migrated from Sudan to Egypt and then to Israel. Mm. Um, So I got to know them. Actually, I was living um, in Cairo for a summer trying to study Arabic and or trying to learn Arabic. Um, And actually, I was also finishing um, a master's program in journalism. So I Mm. needed a writing project Mm -hmm. that's sort of a long form reporting project. Mm -hmm. Um, And in the neighborhood where I was living, there was um, a church, an Anglican church, that was serving refugees who were living in sub-Saharan refugees who were living in Egypt, mm. mostly Sudanese. Um, so I wasn't, yes, I was sort of a rogue person doing it to mm. to help, I, I guess I could say, but I was also right. doing a project, which I actually had a lot of, um, like a reporting and writing project. So I actually had a lot of sort of ethical qualms with that. Um, I mean, the people that I was talking to knew that I was writing about them, but it was also that, that added like a layer of ethical uneasiness on my part because, um, I think they probably thought that like an American aspiring journalist writing about them might actually help them. Mm. And I knew that it didn't, and I never led them to believe that it would or did. Mm-hmm. But um, they were so generous. Some of them were very, very generous with their time and sharing their stories. Um, and I always wanted to be really careful about not exploiting them. But I think that there's something inherently exploitative yeah. about that, about making art or doing projects about people who were very vulnerable. Yeah. I wanted to kind of, have us trace their migration through each stage. And maybe you could yeah. talk a little bit about each kind of phase. So from they they come from Sudan to Egypt, mm-hmm. they say, oh, this kind of sucks here too. Yeah. Then they, they cross the Sinai Peninsula in with that via the help of the Bedouins, right? Mm-hmm. And then they end up in Israel yeah. where they're also unhappy. And then they end up going, some of them at least, end up going back to Sudan. Yeah. Can you trace that a little yeah, bit? Yeah, yeah, I would I would be really happy to. Um so a lot of these refugees um went to Egypt from Sudan not with any intention of staying in Egypt, but with the hope that the UN office in Cairo would resettle them to a third country like Australia or the UK or Europe. Or the U.S. Um, and that was happening. There's a there's a big UN um, 
office in Cairo that had been resettling refugees. Um, and they, the Sudanese refugees had kind of heard by word of mouth that this was a, an opportunity. So they would basically like take um, boats up the Nile from Khartoum to Cairo um, and then go apply for refugee status with the UN High Commissioner for Refugee Office in Cairo. Um, and then and then those who got refugee status could apply for a resettlement. But so few of them got to that point, um, largely because, especially in the case of the Southern Sudanese, who a lot of several of these stories are about, um, in, in 2005, there was a peace agreement between North and South Sudan. So that would make them officially no longer refugees because officially that war is over which of course it wasn't safe for them to go back. Um, but that was, the UN stopped even interviewing them for refugee status. Um, so they pretty much got stuck in Cairo with no status and no protection. And there was a lot of police brutality and harassment on the street. Um, I'm ashamed to say that Egyptians, ashamed because my my dad is Egyptian, um, but Egyptians can, at least when I was there, had been very racist and inhospitable to um, sub-Saharan African refugees. Um, so they were kind of stuck there with no status and very little chance to go elsewhere. And there was actually, um, I don't know, maybe in 2006, there was a, they basically... The Sudanese uh, refugees in Cairo kind of organized this sit-in protest outside the UN office to protest the policy of not interviewing them for refugee status. Um, and they did kind of like a three-month camp out sit-in. And then the Egyptian police raided the camp and brought out like water hoses and dogs and... Um, rounded up people in buses and took them to jail and at least 20 people died. Um, so after that, uh, they realized that it, they really couldn't stay in Egypt with any kind of security. So that's, that precipitated a lot of people going to Israel, um, paying Bedouin smugglers to get them there. Um, and the Bedouin smugglers are pretty well known to bit have been pretty abusive um, and those who make it into Israel, um, they were treated, they have been treated marginally better in Israel, but they still have no, st most of them have no status. Um, and, but because Israel actually doesn't have, um, a, a process for recognizing non-Jewish refugees, and most of these people are either Muslim or Christian. Um, so most of the, many of them have no status or they're on sort of these temporary renewable visas. A lot of them went to immigration detention and a lot of people have been deported. Mm -hmm. And, and so now you're, the work that you're doing now is, are you taking, are you helping people come from Africa 
directly to the United States? I'm not actually helping in that process. Uh Um, I'm just working for a nonprofit that helps refugees resettle to Connecticut. So it's like basically all of the process of them applying and getting here has been done. um, And it's just when they arrive in Connecticut, the nonprofit that I work for helps them find housing and access public benefits and find work and learn English. Um, So it's, it's, um, it's this background that I have in sort of knowing what happens when people are see are are pretty desperately seeking to be resettled and then it's actually been so um healing for me to to work with people who have been resettled um or at least helpful in in uh assuaging that like those ethical dilemmas and also actually trying to help them and not just making writing projects about them. Right. So it was almost like the journalism got you into the humanitarian work. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And and so I, I guess now would be an interesting time to bring in your faith. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of curious how in, – in the book it seems you're a bit – not cagey, but like you don't reveal it all at once. You don't just just say like, "Here's what, here are my beliefs, and here's what's going on." Maybe because you're kind of still figuring out what you mm-hmm. believe. How does your faith play into your work, your humanitarian work, and your journalism and your writing? Hmm. That's a that's a great, tremendous question. <laughs> um, I would say that um, my faith. It's, it's it's a very interesting question because I, although I feel closeness to God and closest to God probably when I'm feeling connections with the refugees that I'm working for, with, I would never say that my desire to try to help them is motivated by faith. And I actually really, so I'm, I am a Christian. Um, and I really bristle when I hear people say, do this because Jesus did it. Because I think you should, help people because you care about the people and it's not about modeling Jesus or thinking that you're going to meet Jesus in those people. Um, and yet my, um, sort of when my story, my personal story converges with their stories and I make real connections and real friendships with refugees, that's when I feel like I am most engaged with my faith. Do you, um, do you talk to them about their faith? I do. Um, and it's one thing, I mean, I've definitely talked with Christian, a lot of, 
Southern Sudanese mostly are, are Christian. Um, and, and so we've definitely talked about prayer. Um, and, and one thing that I've learned so much from them is, is how, um, alive the Bible can be, um, in the sense of, I mean, for example, you know, crossing the Sinai on foot is a biblical story. Um, and sort of what does that, you know, it's, it's not so metaphorical for them. Um, whereas, you know, I did, I went to divinity school and could talk forever about metaphors in the Bible, but it's really, it's a lot more active and live, um, in their lives. But more recently, I've had conversations with Muslim refugees from Darfur and I've really, um, I don't know, that's, that's, that's been the most I felt like I've understood Islam, even though I've studied, I mean, I haven't seriously studied Islam, but I've attempted to learn about it. But, um, yeah, there, like, for example, um, I, uh, I had heard somewhere that, that, um, the Quran says something about God being closer than your jugular vein. And I find that to be like really compelling. Um, and so the last time I was hanging out with a couple of, of, uh, refugees from Darfur that I know, um, through the agency that I work for, um, I just kind of asked them about that and they were like, Oh, one of them was like, yeah, it's true. <laughs> I was like, Oh, okay. And then he was like, yeah, God sees everything. And then he started just like talking about, um, he said, I, I, this was a very beautiful image. Um, he said, um, on Fridays in Darfur, you, uh, wash all the clothes and hang them out to dry. And then you leave the door open for a couple of hours so the angels can come inside. And I have never like given two shits about angels or believed in them or cared until he told me that. And now I'm trying to write an essay about angels. So are you saying that you will, you're not shy about borrowing if for your faith stuff from Judaism or from Islam? Oh no, not at all. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a universalist in the sense that what I could never believe that Christianity is the one and only way it's, yeah the way that's native to me because that's how I was raised and I think it has it offers a lot and I think there's something really beautiful about the Christian story and about sort of how it's it's a response to death and to suffering but yeah I would I happily um, borrow from other other faiths and and other faiths can I would say help help sharpen my faith or give me a little more, I don't know, open, open my eyes or help illuminate things. Your, your book opens with you being baptized at 24 yeah. with your dad yeah. present for it. And your dad is a doc, was a doctor yeah. and from uh, Egypt. Yeah. And your mom was a Pentecostal or grew up in a Pentecostal. Yeah, she grew up. In a pretty old school Pentecostal church. And so, but it seemed like they didn't really, I mean, you said, you just said like, that's how I was raised. Were, I mean, how 
oh, like, were, did they say yeah. you're a Christian? This is what you have to do? Or You're right about, yeah, you're right um, that I, it actually wasn't how I was raised. I was raised in a very Christian culture, and my grandparents on my mom's side and then my dad's brother and sister were pretty traditionally religious. So I got, I really got a, I've always, I've always believed in God and never questioned it much. Um, and my parents identify as Christians, but yeah, I was much more raised on, they, they were both medical professionals and I was, I would say I was much more by them, much more raised in sort of the language of Western medicine and scientific inquiry. Um, but they weren't like hardcore scientists to the point that they were um, atheists. So it was it was this mixture, I would say, of like medical, a medical worldview, a Western medical worldview, and then a very thickly Christian culture. Mm -hmm. Your your dad, when when his liver failed toward the end of his life, it, it, one of the most extraordinary things in the book I thought was his brother drops everything right from from Egypt and comes over to, to care for him and yeah. he says something to the effect of like my brother is my life like this is what can can you talk a little bit about your uncle yeah my uncle he was uh so uncle latif um which means pleasant in arabic um he very much was uh part of 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 shaping my faith um he was also a physician, but he was a lot more, I would say, a lot more spiritual than my dad was. Um, and he's also the basically the person who taught me Arabic. I mean, I took a few classes, but he's the one who actually taught me how to speak. Um, and... Yeah, he was very, very devoted to the family and to my dad. My dad was his younger brother. Um, and their father died when my dad was nine. And I think there was a way in which the older brothers and sisters, my dad was kind of the baby of the family. So I think there was like a parental kind of, um, or at least there was a very strong caregiving um ethic in my family um especially towards my dad um and my my uncle uh i think i i had to confront something that's really troubling to me about christianity through through my uncle's devotion to sacrificing to take care of my dad is um my uncle would had said to me once, you know, it is a blessing to sacrifice for the sake of others. And although I think that is a very beautiful belief and I have a lot of reverence for that in his life, it also terrifies me to think that that's what I'm supposed to do. Um, so that's definitely like a tension in my faith life. Um, but I think the th one of the things that I I'm so grateful for that I don't have as 
troubling a relationship with is is through my uncle and through my grandmother on my mom's side. I really um that really shaped myself as someone who prays. Um, both of them were praying fiercely and regardless of whatever circumstances were at hand. Um, and my uncle as a, as a physician kind of probably knew how bad my dad's prognosis was. Um, and yet he was always, I mean, what was kind of hilarious about it was when he came to the u.s while my dad was recovering from a kidney transplant um in 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 a hospital for months and months he would go to this like little interfaith chapel at the hospital and do these pretty traditional coptic prayers um and yet i'm not in a very traditional way like he would just kind of say the lord's prayer in arabic and pray for healing for my dad and then go smoke his pipe and then go back up and sit by my dad's bedside. So that's, I think he and my, my grandmother, who's my mother's mother, um, gave me a gift in terms of, um, giving me something to do, which is like, which is pray in the face of really terrible things happening. When did you decide to go to divinity school? Let's see. Um, I guess it was about six years ago. Um, I had, I had done a master's in journalism at NYU thinking that I wanted to be an international reporter or an international journalist. Um, and then realizing that that was not for me, um, largely because I write pretty, both because of those like ethical dilemmas that I was talking about, but also because I write pretty slowly and that doesn't really work in, yeah. in journal, in reporting, you know? Um, and so in the meanwhile, while I was trying to figure things out, I was teaching uh, writing at Hofstra University and then thinking, maybe I want to get a PhD in religion and literature, and then found that Yale Divinity School has like a program in religion and literature. Um, so that's really why I went and kind of thought it was funny that it happened to be at a divinity school. I never mm. thought I would go to a divinity school. To me, I was going like... I thought I was doing a master's on the way to maybe getting a PhD in religion and literature. Then I went there and within the first year realized that I don't want an academic career, even though I was loving all of the religion and lit classes that I was taking. Um, but I was in school with a lot of people who wanted to be like real ministers. Um, and and although I never was interested in being a minister in a church, I got really interested in chaplaincy and in more like social justice type work. Um, so I kind of switched tracks and um, started taking classes in social ethics and doing more. Um, it was actually there that I did an internship at the place where I work now. Hmm. Um, so 
it was, yeah, it was kind of a wayward path until I found where now I feel like I found where I want, want to be. Um, and I think I finally stopped going to grad school when I figured out what I want to do. So you, did you graduate from Yale? I did. And yeah. so do you have, pardon my ignorance, but do you have like special, can you officiate wedding? Can... I can't. I do have a master's in divinity, which I think is hilarious because I don't understand how you could imply that one could master divinity. Um, but that's what the degree is called. Uh -huh. um, I would have to get ordained in order to be able to like officiate weddings. Um or baptize officially. Um, I have uh, given communion in a psych hospital, which was one of the coolest, I feel like one of the coolest things that happened while I was in divinity school. Um, although it would depend on like certain church, certain Christian traditions would allow someone who's not ordained to do that. And certain like Episcopalians and Catholics would absolutely, you would need to be ordained. Actually, no. Episcopalians, you can give communion, but you can't, like, bless it and make it yes. ready to be given. Right. Okay. Um, but, yeah. So, uh, I'm not ordained, and I don't think I want, or I'm not planning on getting ordained. Okay. Yeah. Um, you were diagnosed with cancer in 2012, yeah. early 2012. Mm -hmm. um, how has your faith were how is you have you dealt with that with your faith yeah that's a, a great question and something i think i write about a lot yeah. um so often when something like that happens people either become like stronger in their faith or they turn to faith or they are angry at god or or because, or turn away from faith. And I don't, I haven't done either. I would say that I've um, almost become more lucid in my faith. I, I feel like I have more um, clarity and precision about my faith. Not that I could articulate well, but maybe almost that I could experience through rituals or images um, in ways that I don't think, I think my faith, although it was there, it was a lot more abstract um, before I was diagnosed with cancer. Um, it's also been interesting for me in terms of prayer um, because I have a lot of trouble and I don't think I've ever wholeheartedly done it of like praying for myself to be healed. I, I pray for a lot of other people for things that I don't quite think are, po think are possible. Like I pray for peace in Sudan, you know, I, I pray for other people to be healed when it's unlikely that they would be. And yet I just can't bring myself to pray for myself to be healed. And it's not just like, oh, I can't pray for myself. I pray for myself for other things. Like I pray for myself that I can write something awesome. So, you know, it's not about like humility or thinking I don't deserve it. It's just 
I don't know exactly what it is, but I think it probably has a lot to do with that very medical upbringing that I had where I'm like, yeah, it's, it's not going to happen. Um, it's stage four. Um, I hope it happens. I hope I'm healed, but I don't think that will happen. And, and so, you know, I've actually had conversations with people about like my inability to pray for it. Um, and a friend of mine, actually Steve Prothero, who is also involved with killing the Buddha was said, well, maybe it's because if you don't believe it's going to happen, then it kind of sets you up for disappointment with God. If you ask for something that, that doesn't happen, which I think is in some ways true, but I also ask for things that I don't think are going to happen like peace in Sudan. Um, so I don't know. It's 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 made me think a lot about my prayer life and also kind of try different ways of praying. I've actually become a lot more like Catholic in my practice. Not that I have become a Catholic, but I I do things like pray to saints and um probably am more moved by ritual than I ever have been. I think that's the last thing I wanted to ask you about is just yeah. the role of because you're in your book throughout there's a lot of different rituals that you seem to really relish. Yeah. Why why are rituals so great? <laughs> um I think it because it's something concrete to do in the face of of things that I don't know what to do about. And so it feels like a way of doing something towards God um, and something that is um, also has, I guess I would say, has been made holy by other people doing them towards God. Um, that helps me feel rather than just kind of sit with them and and uh be troubled it's like at least um i don't know troubling the waters um by doing some sort of um act that is hopeful uh the book was really moving and also funny in parts and sad Good, i'm glad and, <laughs> that that and i wanted to say thanks for coming up to our little studio here and thank uh, you I, I do want to add something which yeah. i remembered that i actually wrote um the very first version of one of the um, stories in the book on my first residency here. Whoa. Yeah. The, f the first one? Or no, which... it was the one, the Bible in our hands, the uh -huh. story about the Sudanese refugee. That was the one that I, that got me, like that, that I was gripping. So awesome. that's cool. Well, that, that, that began <laughs> here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks to Ashley for coming.
coming into the studio and uh, thanks to Ben and Harriet as always thank you to my co-host Zohar Gitlis and uh, we'll see you guys next week Thank you.